Welcome to Peer to Peer, the podcast, brought to you by Rayner. Listen in as we hear from top surgeons having great conversations with their peers about hot and popular topics in ophthalmology. For this episode of Peer to Peer, the podcast, we joined Professor Oliver Findle and Dr. David Chang in person during a recent Congress to talk sustainability. Professor Oliver Findle chairs the Department of Ophthalmology at the Hanisch Hospital in Vienna, Austria. He has authored over 350 articles in international peer-reviewed journals and is currently the president of the European Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgeons, ESCRS, where his tenure has focused on a mission of sustainability. Dr. David Chang is a clinical professor at the University of California, San Francisco. He has worked extensively with American Academy of Ophthalmology and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Dr. Chang currently heads the advisory board of iSustain, a global consortium of eye societies focused on making ophthalmic care and surgery more sustainable. Let's dive in. Welcome to another peer-to-peer podcast hosted by Rainer. I'm your host for this episode, my name is Oliver Findel. Today we're discussing sustainability in ophthalmology, something both myself and my guest, Professor David Chang from the University of California, San Francisco, are passionate about and work actively to promote in our field. Welcome, David. Thank you, Oliver. Um, let's start off uh, with a question. Why is sustainability becoming such a, let me say, talking point within ophthalmology? You know, it's interesting because uh, there was almost nothing said about this before. And I think it's really two things. The first is the growing awareness that climate change has significant public health impact. In fact, the WHO in 2021, this is the middle, remember now, the pandemic of the century, they said that the greatest threat to human health, well, it's not pandemics, it's actually global warming. And so uh, the second piece of that, then, is the recognition that our healthcare sector uh, accounts for a significant amount of the carbon emissions uh, for most industrialized countries, ranging from maybe 5% for most European countries to almost 10% in the U.S. This is the percentage of that country's CO2 emissions that come from the healthcare sector. So this sets up this paradox that here the very profession that is charged with safeguarding the public's health is actually a big part of the problem that's causing the greatest threat to health. And so I think it then becomes uh, irresponsible for us to knowingly be wasteful and to not be addressing this problem. Exactly, and and, and the question now really is, um, you know, which initiatives um, are you actually involved in and in trying to change your, let me say, day-to-day practice, um, as well as, you know, and obviously we want to talk about ISIS thing, which you were, you know, the promoter to, to start and initiate. So tell us a little about what you do from day-to-day and, and what, what we can do. Well, I work in a, uh, a freestanding eye-only surgery center, and so we, because we're not uh, part of a big hospital system, our focus has already always been on efficiency and also on cost-effectiveness. Uh, so we already come from a mindset of, you know, why are we doing this? Do we need to do this and so forth? Uh, but I don't think we were doing it from a sustainability standpoint. We just wanted to be more efficient. And uh, But I got involved in this uh, because of regulations that continually arise in the United States that say, okay, right now we don't think you can do short cycle sterilization. We need to do these longer cycles. And we're going, well, this has been our standard of care. Where's the evidence for that? And so in doing so, you realize that um, so much of what we do is based on maybe someone's guidance or advice that gets somehow turned into a regulation that's inflexible. And all along, you know, there is no uh, evidence about that. So we did a survey. I think surveys are a good way to kind of 
uh, take the temperature of what people are feeling. And they started with a, a survey from this little task force. And we decided to look at attitudes of uh, North American surgeons toward uh, surgical waste. And uh, you know, we expected that people would recognize it. We just didn't expect that more than 95% across the board would say, number one, that we're wasting too much, are concerned about uh, global warming. Uh, number two, they want reusable options. They want to reduce, find ways to reduce unnecessary waste. Well, how much people are willing to reuse things. So I think that was a start that was a wake-up call, sent a message to uh, the, our societies and also to surgical manufacturers that there is a, a consensus out there to look for more sustainable solutions. That, in turn, uh, brought in a lot of you know, uh, responses, yes, and you know, we're doing this, and we thought about this. And uh, without a centralized place to find resources of who's doing what, uh, nothing happens. So we created um, iSustain really to be a place to network and to share some of this information. Uh, and uh, what really, I think, spurred it uh, forward was your involvement and interest uh, as the ESUS president. Uh, and uh, our interests just intersected beautifully there. And I think with that momentum, we then made the decision to bring in the American Academy of Ophthalmology. So we have ASUS, ESUS, three major societies that are uh, committed to you know, not only sponsoring and funding iSustain, but actually making sustainability kind of a core uh, interest and a core priority for the society. Yeah, and, and, and I think one of the issues, of course, and that's a question I think we get from many, is that, you know, there are many regulatory issues which, you know, have come up over the last 20, 30 years. Um, everything becomes more and more difficult to do. You know, regulatory tells you you have to do this and that, and we get more and more um, uh, rules of what we need to do. And it's very difficult to bind those back, because there was always some reason why something was done, right, at some point. Something happened somewhere. And, so, so do you see how, how, how can we tackle that and you know that's obviously going to be different for the US than for the EU for example but what, what's your take at the moment what's the best strategy to tackle that? Well it's very complex I actually uh, wrote a uh, paper which is kind of an editorial and review paper in the April issue of JCRS it's uh, open access so you don't have to be a subscriber uh, to read that to try to dissect the root causes for why we are forced to waste so much because the question is you know if uh, you know, we had, uh, we, as you know, we uh, did a survey with ESRS uh, members as well. And so collectively, in uh, North America and Europe, we had more than 1,500 ophthalmologists responding. And there's huge consensus that we're wasting so much. So, so why is it we can't uh, change? Uh, I think there are multiple causes. One is education, not understanding the harm uh, of this waste. It's not just throwing away money uh, needlessly, but it's creating harm. Uh, the second, is that a lot of regulations that make sense for other specialties are probably not necessary when they're applied to ophthalmology because of our clean procedures. The third is that you know small uh, practices become amplified enormously because of the surgical volumes in ophthalmology worldwide, year after year after year, because of how common our procedures are. And then the final one is that um, you know I think. Well-intended organizations focused on patient safety will often come out with recommendations. They often are not evidence-based, so that's why they have to give recommendations that are intended to be guidance. And it's just too simple then for a regulatory body to come in and say, oh, you have to do that now. So something that becomes maybe a guideline, a consideration for people, once it becomes a regulation, uh, my discretion is removed. And I think that's really dangerous. You, you know, we used to think the FDA and some of these regulations were unique to the U.S., but a lot is going on in Europe on the regulatory side. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think I think that the the, the the whole picture has changed, uh, you know, significantly from from a few years ago. But that was also because there was an issue in this case with breast implants uh, in, in in France. You know, a completely different issue, nothing to do with ophthalmology, of course, or any other field. And and essentially, companies not doing what they should be doing, and then now regulations become much more tighter and tighter. Um, and which is, you know, also has some positive aspects, no question, but essentially has a lot of, uh, you know, revenues, let me say so, collateral damage in a certain way, you know, to, to other things. So I think that, that's what we're seeing with sustainability. But, but on the other hand, and I think, you know, we, we, as you know, you've, you've initiated these workshops we have together with industry, we're also seeing that industry actually has um, a lot of motivation to change things. And I think the reason is in industry, you have people sitting there and they actually think you know we have to do something each one individually thinks we have to do something and therefore in these companies luckily there are people <laughs> who it's not just you know some company but it's actually people who are sitting there and, and I'm, I'm quite um, actually I'm, I'm for example rain is a good example um, you know last year at, at the Milan Congress at, at ECS in Vienna sorry Milan and this year hopefully in Vienna too they they you know the, their booth was was they, they sort of saw that we have this initiative of also trying to reduce carbon emissions of, of, of a big event, which is a Congress. And we want to meet face-to-face. -face. We've learned that through the pandemic, you know, virtual doesn't do the job. And, and, and you know, they've, uh, you know, paperless, um, no brochures, um, you know, a lot of reusable materials for their booths and so forth. And, and, and actually, you know, and, and trying to lead the way as well, and also, you know, concerning packaging for for their IOLs and other products, you know, changing, trying to reduce paper with the, you know the electronic IFUs, and, and I know that you, you know we you're, you're very strong on that initiative. So I think we're seeing that industry is really also attempting to trying to, to change the better. Um, and, and of course, even though regulation at some point may, may be a problem. So, but what, what about EFI IFUs? You know, the information for use. You know, these big paper. Well, you know, uh, how many IOLs have I put in uh, without ever even taking that little pamphlet out and opening it up? It's incredible how large that is, and it's because uh, there's certain requirements of information that has to be there: patient safety, adverse reactions, but it has to be in multiple languages. And of course, okay, maybe this made sense in the 1970s and 80s, but nowadays almost every other industry has moved to QR codes, uh, not just because it's more cost-effective and it doesn't take up space, it reduces waste, but it's a lot more easy to update. I mean, just uh, if you had to change something at, at IOL, just the amount of inventory that's been manufactured and shipped is incredible. So this would seem to be sort of a, a no-brainer, it's common sense, uh, and as we've gone into that, we find that it, it is a little complicated. And that the problem is that many countries, uh, for whatever reason, have uh, not allowed companies to go to electronic IFU. So it becomes particularly um, uh, uh, infuriating, I think, with ophthalmology. Because with every viscoelastic, you have to have this printed instruction for use with every IOL. The IOL cartridge has an instruction for use. And this is just generating paper trash over and over and over again. And it seems to be the uh, inability of certain countries to sort of move past that requirement uh, that then constrains the large manufacturers at the market and multiple global markets from, again, doing the common sense uh, right thing. So we, uh, one of the things I think that's important with iSustain is it's a, it's a consortium of medical societies 
I think this is where we need our societies to work together to come up with certain best practices and position papers so that we don't have to make the argument as an individual uh, and to either collect the evidence or produce the studies that say, look, you know, this is what needs to be done. So as you know, Oliver, and, and you're an author on this uh, document, uh, we have created a position paper on electronic IFU, uh, basically looking at who gets harmed, what's the potential harm from that from the standpoint of uh, patients, surgeons, regulatory bodies, and facilities. And, and just taking the example of IOLs, uh, and what we are showing is uh, that by the recommendation, every single thing should have an electronic IFU. But if you have to start somewhere, start with these items that are used in almost every single case without any exception. Uh, just think about the size of the IOL and the IOL box. And the fact that the main reason the box is the size that it is, is to accommodate the folded pamphlet of IFU. Which at the end of the day, nobody reads. Which no one reads, exactly. <laughs> and even if I wanted to read it, I'm presbyopic, the print is too small. So I would much rather have a, a QR code that I can, you know, enlarge on my, uh, on my screen uh, to do that. So let me ask you sort of one of the last questions. What do you think of the, the, the as you always call it, low-hanging fruit? What can we do tomorrow or next week and, and actually change in our practice without, you know, having to wait for change in regulations or having to wait for companies and manufacturers to come up with new concepts, new materials, which will all take, obviously, quite a long time. Well, there, there are actually quite a lot of things. Uh, you think, oh my gosh, this is such a tough problem. You know, it will take so long to change these regulations and so forth. But there are actually quite a number of things. Um, so one of them, uh, which saves us money, uh, and, and I'm going to ask you to comment on it actually first, uh, and that is to take our surgical packs, which are standardized, and to go through and just simply look at what's not getting used. This is just a matter of never getting around to doing it, you know. And so um, maybe you could just talk about uh, what you found in terms of that and, and what uh, we're also impressed with this initiative that you've uh, led in the SOS on cities. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 essentially what we've looked at is, is, is the, um, the PACS and, and, and in Austria, which is a small country, and we only have like 33 surgical centers that you can't write, so we know them all. And we looked at the pack list and we saw that there was a lot of variability, you know, in, in, in how many. We have um, the situation that there's a lot of variability and what we saw is if we were to get all the Austrians and all these surgical centers to go down to, let me say, lowest common denominator, which is also obviously of good quality because they still do very good surgery, then we can reduce the carbon footprint of cat packs by pretty much a third, you know, without any loss in quality or any problem with regulations. And so I think this is something we can do easily. And so we, we, we devised this, this CIDICS calculator, which will be you know, coming out this summer, where essentially everybody can calculate the carbon footprint of their pack with generic you know, um, 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 drape size and, you know, and weight of different things, and how many syringes, how many, cap uh, how, how many cannons, and so forth. And so I think that is something where you can just play around and say, we're going to have a benchmark and how far I'm away from the benchmark and maybe I can try to just reduce my back size which as you said will also actually be a benefit concerning price and costs and maybe even a benefit to companies because then they may have less variability in packs and less logistics and less you know having so many different packs for, for different surgeons. So, so uh, that's, that's fantastic and I think that's uh, a huge win because obviously you, you save money by not using things, uh, discarding things that we've never uh, used. There are a couple other things that I think are very straightforward. You know, we have a clean procedure, and we don't aerosolize, you know, uh, uh, microbes 
we, we did all these studies during COVID to show that FACO doesn't really aerosolize uh, microorganisms. So there's really no need for a full body drape for the patient to wear gowns. Uh, you could just use a large plastic drape to drink the eye, and that saves a huge uh, amount there. Uh, there's some other ones, you know, uh, there's actually a great study from Baskin Palmer, so it's an eye surgery operating room showing just how much water and money they save per operating per year if you go to an alcohol-based hand scrub versus going to the sink every time. Again, for this clean procedure, totally uh, sensible. Uh, there, we did a lot of work on multi-dose bottles uh, being discarded after just one use. That was probably the first big thing we did with eye sustain. Uh, getting, uh, we, we like had the dilating problems for the second problems for the studies. We had to do this more for the United States because it required not only gathering the evidence but going to each of the regulatory authorities in the U.S. and getting clarification on that. You would think it's so easy, and of course we've always done that in our little uh, surgery center. But here again, the survey showed what it showed that ninety-eight percent of people felt it was safe to use multi-dose bottles like dilating drops of multiple patients in the perioperative area, but less than half were actually doing. So what was stopping them was some level of regulation, uh, maybe at the hospital level, uh, uh, you know, maybe a, a different regulatory agency. So uh, what we did was created this multi-society uh, endorsed uh, position paper advocating that you don't have to throw out drops until the date of the expiration. And that uh, saves not only a lot of money, but because of the carbon footprint of a drug, it actually has a, a huge uh, impact. So, so that is uh, an important one. I think. Uh, there's other things, recycling strategies, but I think probably the single biggest thing is to actually educate yourself and your staff, because I think when people understand that this has more of a, than an impact of just you know wasting money, that there's actually an environmental harmful impact from this, that will motivate people to look for ways to reduce that. So what we've done with iSustain, we've created the facility pledge, and when you go on our homepage, you can have uh, your facility Take the pledge. There are seven items that you're pledging to either do or try to implement. Things that you can do now to reduce the environmental footprint. Uh, and then your facility will be listed on the website. And when individuals come to us, I want to do something, how can I be involved? I think that's one of the first things to do. Uh, whether you're a resident or just someone who operates there, you don't have to be the chief of the department, you can start pulling things together, uh, educating people, and kind of asking the question, why are we doing this? And now you'll have resources to uh, catalyze change. So it, it, everything has to happen uh, like a ladder, one step at a time. And it just takes one person per facility to kind of kickstart things. But the payoff is how many cases, eye cases, are going to be done in that facility annually, year after year after year. So it's worth taking that step. Well, I think that was a really good last word. You know, what can we do next week at the pledge with isustain.org is the, is the website. Thank you very much, David, for joining me. Thank you, Oliver. And thank you, Verena, for, for, for that opportunity. And yeah, uh, we'll, 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 we'll stay on the topic. Sure, well, it's been such a great uh, journey working with In the next episode of Peer to Peer, the podcast, we are joined by new host, Dr. Arjun Hura from the United States for a four-part series on Omidria. For more information about this episode's topic and to read the show notes, visit the Peer to Peer hub at rainer.com forward slash peer to peer. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, please subscribe to our channel to be notified of new episodes. 
This podcast is provided for general information purposes only. The presenter's views are their own. Rayner does not endorse off-label use. Users must refer to the product labelling and instructions for use for Rayner products in all cases. Not all Rayner products are available in all countries. The full disclaimer can be found in the show notes.